our, our culture, and I study it constantly because uh, we have to uh, give a defense of the faith, uh, our culture has many uh, erroneous systems of belief, worldviews, and they would be called. Uh, so, I mean, you can list them all. There's progressivism, uh, pragmatism, hedonism, nihilism, Marxism, atheism, agnosticism, skepticism, and the list is long. Uh, but as Christians, you should know what those systems teach so that when you run into somebody who's been duped by those systems, you know how to present to them the faulty, erroneous, untenable nature of said system and the superiority of the gospel of Christ. You should have an answer. Uh, the book of First uh, John uh, tells us how to give an answer to a, a culture that needs Christ. Uh, and as we study this book, you're going to see that uh, the two greatest things that you can pay attention to is giving time and attention to true words... Uh, and to a true walk, uh, attention to true words, that you speak truth, uh, even if it's costly to you, uh, and that's backed up by a true life. Because if you speak true words and you have a compromised life, they will spot the hypocrisy straight away. Even a high school student will. In fact, they're really good at, at, noting, at noticing it. Uh, and so, uh, so look for consistency between what you teach as truth and that your life actually reflects the truth. First uh, John, written by John, uh, the beloved disciple of Christ, uh, while he was in his uh, 90s, um, was written to the seven churches of Asia Minor. They were infiltrated back in the day by Gnostic teachers, philosophers, uh, and we've studied Gnosticism uh, many times as we've gone through this book. But they, they basically uh, denied the full deity of Christ, uh, they uh, opted for a mind-body uh, division, that the mind is more powerful than the body, uh, and uh, what the mind conceives is what is reality, and what happens to the body doesn't matter. And so that led to antinomianism, lawlessness. You could live however you wanted to because you're a rule unto yourself. Sound familiar? It is in our culture today. What my mind decrees what reality is which goes against Aristotelian uh, understandings of the first principles of logic and what is reality. Uh, and, uh, and so uh, if you come to our apologetics conference in, um, uh, in uh, um, October, uh, the 7th and 8th, uh, we have Hugh Ross is, is going to be here, uh, Greg Kokel is going to be here, some of the great Christian apologists. Um, uh, I'm going to be teaching a class as well on uh, the concept of truth, what is truth as opposed to how the world views truth. Because John's speaking about truth. What is truth? Uh, and he's teaching uh, it in this book to these churches that have been inf infiltrated by these false systems. And these, these people have duped many of the Christians. Churches are split. The churches are a mess. And so John, as the, the beloved uh, pastor, is, uh, is writing them a, a love letter to call them back to walking with Christ uh, and to heal those churches. And so in, if you go back to chapter 1, verses 1 to 4, his introduction, uh, the things that he says there about Jesus are merely words that counter what the Gnostics were saying about who is Jesus. Because uh, they messed up on the person of Christ. And he brings you back at the very beginning with who is Jesus. When you get to chapter 1, verse 5, uh, from what he says there about uh, that there's no darkness in God, uh, he's, he's telling you the Gnostics believe that God can be composed of light and darkness. And that's what they taught. Which That's logically inconsistent, but that's what they taught. Uh, and so he, he's gently telling these Christians... Um, Here's, here's what is true. Let me explain to you what is truth. Uh, and, then, uh, and, and here's what is false. And by the way, uh, let me talk to you about your walk. Because there's nothing more persuasive than a person who knows biblical truth and isn't afraid to speak it, and it's backed up by a life that reflects Christ. That's persuasive. And so as we look at this book, you'd be thinking to yourself, is my life a component of these two things? I don't know, did you ever do the teeter-totter when you were a kid? 
am I dating myself? I don't even, do they even have them anymore? You know, we always did it to where you hit the ground hard and tried to eject your friend. Did you? <laughs> yeah, we, we, we did that on purpose to see how high we could fly. Now it's like, I would never think of doing that. I would probably die, but we did that all the time. You know, now when your bones would break like readily, back then you didn't think they would. So, so teeter-totter comes a great illustration. Uh, on one side, to have balance between the two uh, is, um, uh, is my life consumed with truth, not falsity, masquerading as truth. And, and, and on the other side, the balance is, does my life look like Christ? I mean, that's basically your Christian walk. And so as we look at this chapter before us, uh, chapter uh, 228 uh, through chapter 4, verse 19, I've told you that entire section uh, is a unit designed uh, to answer one basic hermeneutical question. Here's the question. We'll pose it again. We're going to go through this many times because it's the main idea of the whole section. What does bold belief look like in trying times? Because he lived in trying times where the church was under attack. Nothing's different today. It's just different kinds of false worldviews trying to infiltrate the church to divide and destroy said churches. And so as we looked at last week, the first answer that he gives in verse 28, so if you weren't here last week, this is uh, new for you. If you were here last week, bear with me, just review. In verse 28, what he says is uh, we should obey Christ in a, in a godless time because we're going to give account to him at the judgment seat of Christ. He's not talking about non-Christians. That's the great white throne judgment, Revelation 27 to 15. He's talking about as a Christian, you will give account for how well you ran the race, how hard you followed after Christ. Are you ready to give account? And he says in that passage that some will not be ready to give account. They will not be confident and they will have shame when they see Jesus because, well, they didn't have their spiritual act together when he appears. So the goal in your Christian life is to live so intimately with Jesus that when he appears, you're confident when you see him face to face. And you have no shame to stand before him and be judged by him. So in light of that, I have to ask you, uh, did you live this last week in light of the fact that the trumpet could sound at any time and you have to give account? Did you think about it? Uh, number two, he said, bold belief lives in light of who Jesus is, character-wise. What is his character like? He says in verse 29, uh, it's a conditional clause. He says, if you, he's speaking to Christians, uh, if you know that he, speaking of Jesus, is righteous, you know that everyone also who practices righteousness is born of him. And I throw the Greek up there because we have uh, Dallas Seminary, uh, we're their East Coast campus uh, currently, and we have students here that actually study that stuff on the bottom line. Whatever for. Um, well, I'll, I'll explain to you why. So, th so this is what he says. It's a conditional clause. So every conditional clause has a protesis and a apotesis, an if and a then. If this, then this. Uh, and so what you have is you have this uh, eon, this word right here is uh, if in Greek. There's uh, basically four different ways to say if in Greek. In English, how many do we have? One. That's why English is so limited. That's why God wants you to learn Greek. Um, so why in the world is that there? Because it is called a third-class condition, which means he's not too sure that the Christians he's talking to are going to do what he says. Because he's wise enough to know as an old pastor, Christians are not completely consistent in their obedience. Are you? No, no, you're inconsistent. So it's always this if thing. So if you know that Jesus is righteous, then what's the well, cause and the effect? Well, you should know that if you practice righteousness, which is what Jesus is, then you look like a Christian. So is it possible for a Christian not to practice righteousness and not look like a Christian? Yeah, I've met lots of them, starting with myself. You know, all you have to do is forget that Jesus is righteous and live in light of his righteousness. And the minute you do that, uh, you then all of a sudden don't look like you're born again. And so in this particular passage, that particular construction, that third class condition is letting you know 
There's potentiality here for disobedience or carnality in the Christian life. But, but you don't want that because remember verse 28, one day you're going to stand before the judgment bar of God and he's going to say, hey, how well did you run the Christian life? Let me test your life in my fire. What was your life? Gold? Was it silver? Was it wood? Hay? Stubble? Let's analyze your life so I can reward you accordingly. Who wants to stand there on that day and be fearful of what's coming out of the fire of the, of the trial? I, 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 I want to be confident, and I want you to be confident. So, Bo Belief constantly looks at Jesus is the standard of righteousness, uh, and um, he is who we measure our lives against. Uh, so, it's a conditional statement. You might do it, you might not do it, but you probably should do it, right? Why? You're going to stand before God and give account. Uh, and I'm repeating myself because um, repetition is a wonderful thing. Because sometimes you didn't get it the first time. You were drifting. You were concentrating on what's, what kind of third clause. What's he talking about? I don't understand this guy. Why are we talking about grammar? I'm just bringing you back to reality, okay? So Jesus is the standard of measurement for what is righteous and holy. He's the standard. He's not a standard. He's righteousness. He's the epitome of it. Uh, Revelation chapter 19 uh, tells you that he is. Uh, the, this is the second coming of Jesus. When he comes back at the end of the seven-year tribulation, he appears for all the world to see, coming on a mighty horse, arrayed in, in splendor, uh, and the mighty armies of God behind him. And John says, and I saw heaven opened. So God's dimensionality merges with our dimensionality so they can see him. And um, behold, a white horse, and he, Jesus, who sat on it, is called faithful and true. And what does he do? In, well, in righteousness, he judges and he wages war. So he takes on all of the godless armies of the world that are arrayed against Israel to wipe them off the map one final time, and he appears to save his people. Uh, and he's called faithful and true. You can bank on him being the epitome of truth, and he's the essence of righteousness. So he is the standard. So when he comes to do battle as the great Davidic warrior against sin and evil, uh, he has the ultimate right to do it because he's the standard of measurement. He's absolute righteousness. And I, I couldn't help, I was, I was surfing the net this morning listening to oldies and I ran into the Righteous Brothers. Remember them? Aren't they the guys with, uh, you've lost that loving, those guys, you remember that? Yeah. Were they righteous? Well, they were kind of righteous, you know, <laughs> but they weren't righteous because, you know, they had issues, right? They had sin. So they were kind of righteous maybe, but, but, you know, but, but not like Jesus. Jesus is righteous. He's the standard of, of righteousness. So what does that mean? Let me, let me ex illustrate it to you uh, in, uh, by this uh, metaphor. Uh, last year, we, re we redid our whole first floor at our house. So all the old flooring out, you know, all the kitchen out, and just redid er did everything. Um, and it was kind of interesting. It was really messy for months. And you're wondering, what have we done to our house? This is not, we're cooking on one little burner. We're going to starve to death. And how long does this project take? You know, et cetera. So uh, the guy came in when he finally got down to doing the kitchen. And all the cabinets arrived. And he's going to hang all the cabinets. All the walls are redone. Electricity's all been rerouted. Everything's cool. Everything's sanded down, ready. So they brought the cabinets in. And he brought in a laser level. And he stuck it on, a, on, a, on a, like a tripod thing. And he hit a button. Boom. Out across the entire kitchen went laser lines. Were they crooked? No. No, they were perfectly straight. Perfectly straight. Thank God for a contractor who does not eyeball stuff. Because <laughs> once you saw all those red lines going all over the kitchen, it's like, okay, Larry, hang that cabinet right there. That'll be the first one. And all the other ones will be following that one. You want that one to, well, just let me eyeball that thing. Do you want the guy doing that? No. 
Because when you eyeball it here and it's off five degrees, you get down there around the corner, you got issues, right? Once he popped those in, I, and I told him when they started the project, don't mind me, I ask lots of questions. I'm not, I'm not trying to tell you how you do your job. I just find it interesting what you're doing. So, whoa, what is this? I need me one of these. <laughs> um, not that I would ever use it, but laser level. And so they put all the cabinets in and they're straight, they're perfect. So when they did the crown molding, it was like, there wasn't huge gaps and everything just fit together. Awesome. Now, now it's great. Wife is happy. I'm happy. I know how it rolls. And I'm looking at this going, this is a spiritual illustration, isn't it? Because that laser line was righteous. <laughs> you, you follow me? It was straight. And you could tell what was straight because the line was righteous. And it was red, too. Relates to the blood of Christ, right? <laughs> I'm just saying it's theological. I mean, I'm getting blessed with contractors in the kitchen. So when it says Jesus is the righteous one, um, he's a standard of measurement, which means if I study his life as a Christian, and I do, if I model his life and I seek to on a daily basis, then I mature in the faith and I look like I'm born again. If I don't model his life as a Christian because I'm disobedient, at any given point, then I don't look born again. doesn't mean that I'm not born again. It just doesn't mean, means I don't look like I am. That's what it means. So uh, let's look at verse uh, 7. First uh, uh, John chapter 3, verse 7. We're going to skip down a couple of verses uh, and cheat a little bit by going forward. It takes us about three months to get here, so just come with me. Uh, we'll eventually get here. But little children, speaking of Christians, let no one deceive you. The one who practices righteousness is righteous just as he is righteous, all right? So he said, if you practice righteousness as a Christian, you're righteous. How do you get righteous? By doing what Jesus says is righteous, not what I think is righteous. But notice what he said, let no one deceive you. Now, again, English is limited. So uh, Greek has uh, two ways to present a command. If they pr present a command with a negative particle like no, with a present tense verb, like you see here, it forbids an action in progress. Do you follow me? If he chose the other way to say no, he would have couched it with a different verb, with the negative particle, and it would have meant, don't even think of doing this. If you're a parent, you totally understand this terminology. And so, you, know, you, you tell your child, do you even think of breaking curfew, correct? Or you, you don't care. Yeah. It's that kind of thing. So the fact that he uses a negative particle here with a, a present tense verb, he's telling them, stop letting Gnostics deceive you. See? So is it possible for a Christian to be led astray? Yeah. 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 I mean, off kilter. Uh, it, it, this is kind of what we were talking about before church, uh, about our dear brother at another church. So it's like, it, yeah, you can get off. Uh, and, and he says, stop, stop letting that happen. You know, uh, he, he, he said, just get back to, to truth. And little children, don't, don't let anybody deceive you. So I have to stop and ask you as your pastor, is anybody speaking into your life that's causing you to deviate from truth. I mean, it's what they're saying is true, but it doesn't, it doesn't jive with the Bible. It doesn't jive with Jesus. You need to get away from that friend or rebuke that friend or admonish that friend because this is, this is not a friend. This is falsity. And so uh, he's telling them, you know, if you want to live a righteous life, well, you got to follow he who is righteous, and that's Jesus. How well do you know him and how well do you follow him? Number three, a bold belief lives in light of who you are. Well, who are you? What does he say? See how great a love the Father has bestowed on us. I mean, God has showered you as a Christian with love beyond what you can even comprehend. He says he showered this love on us that we, here's the reason why he did it, that we should be called the children of God, and such we are. For this reason, the world does not know us because it didn't know him. This is interesting. 
So who, so who are you? Well, if you have low self-esteem when you came in here this morning, you should walk out with your chest out, shoulders back, going, yes, I'm a child of God. You sound so excited. Thank you. It's, you should be excited because uh, the devil wants to whisper in your ear, you're nobody, you're nothing. You've been married how many times? Really? You're such a loser. You can't get your life together. Look at the sin that you've done. Blah, blah, blah. This is the devil. This is the devil. And Jesus comes along and says, no, listen to John. John says, remember how much I, I loved you and how much my father loved you. So uh, if you are uh, born in this country, you are an American citizen, right? But you're, another, you're a citizen of another country, are you not, if you're a Christian? So I might be an American citizen. I love my country. But long before I'm an American citizen, well, I'm a citizen of heaven. See what I'm saying? So the heaven ha my heavenly citizenship takes precedence over my earthly membership because this membership, this, this is going away. I'm a member there. So which means if I'm a citizen of heaven, I should act like a child of the king. That's what he's talking about. Remember, by the way, go back to verse 28. Why should I live in light of my sonship or daughtership? Because one day as a son, one day as a daughter, I give account to my father. Son, how well did you run the Christian walk? So he says, God has bestowed love on you. So think back. Um, who were you before you were a son or a daughter of Christ, if you're a Christian today? Let's just remember, who, who were you? Uh, here's what the Scripture says. Uh, number one, you were classified as a sinner and enemy of God. Why? Romans 5.10, for if while we were still enemies, we were reconciled to God, notice the preposition, preposition totally important, you're reconciled to God, how? Well, it's through or by means of the death of his son. Much more having been reconciled, we're going to be saved by his life. I love prepositions, don't you? It tells me, I didn't say myself. I was an enemy of God. What did he do? Well, he made it possible for me to re be reconciled through the salvific death of his son. But I used to be his enemy. Number two, we were sons of darkness, weren't you? I was. It says, uh, John 12, 36, while you have the light, believe in the light, in order that you may become sons of light, which suggests you're not a son of life if you don't know Jesus. You're a son of darkness. These things Jesus spoke as he departed and hid himself from them. So who did we used to be before we were saved? Sons of darkness. Who's the Lord of darkness? The devil. Uh, three, we were sons of disobedience. Ephesians 2. He says, and you were, as non-Christians, dead in your trespasses and sins. You were born that way because you were born under the sign of Adam. He says, in which you formerly walked according to the course of this world... Notice here comes the devil. According to the prince and the power of the air, that's the devil, and of the spirit that is now working in the sons of disobedience, that's the devil. What's the problem with the world? They're born in sin, and who's instigating them for greater sin? The devil. He said, that used to be you. You used to be a son of disobedience. And then he says uh, elsewhere, Ephesians 2, you were children who were objects of God's divine wrath because he's holy. It says in verse 3, among them, uh, we too all formerly lived in the, what did you do when you were non-Christian? <laughs> whatever the lust of my flesh said, because I thought I was a lot of myself, indulging in the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, even as the rest. That's who you used to be. But then God convicted you of your sin, and you got reconciled to God. How? Well, by means of the work of Christ. So how did you become a son or a daughter of God? Uh, well, let's peruse what the scriptures say. How did, they, how did you get redeemed through Christ's redemptive work? Number one, he who was sinless bore your sin. You realize that he did. That's the day you get saved. Uh, second, he who has eternal life died to give you the prospects of life because you were dead in sin. That's what he just said in Ephesians 2. You were spiritually dead. He gave you life so you could become his child. Uh, but this all came about through your faith relationship to the Savior who died for your sin. Three, 
He who was innocent died for the guilty. Who was the guilty? Me. You. Why do you hang on the cross? Not for his sin. Your sin, my sin. The minute you come to understand that, you get saved. Uh, next. What does, it, what, does it, what does it teach us in the scriptures? First uh, Peter chapter 2, 24. He, he who was sinless bore our sin. He was the lamb who bore our sin and took it to the cross. Next, he who has eternal life died to give us the prospects of life. He who was innocent died for the guilty. Uh, on and on it goes. First uh, Peter chapter 2, verse 22 says, He who is spiritually and morally perfect died for the spiritually and morally imperfect. That's what he did. First uh, Peter 2, 9 says, He's the epitome of spiritual life. He died for those in spiritual darkness. Why did he do all that? One word, love. It's the mystery of the universe. A broken, sinful people. God looked down from heaven and said, I love you enough to send my son to live a perfect life, to bear your sin, so that when you turn to him in faith, you become a, a son, a daughter. What higher position could you have? Now, here's the thing. If you are a son or daughter of God, then go live like it. That's the point. Why? Go back to verse 28. Why should I live like a son or a daughter? One day I have to give account to my father. Lord, how, how well did I live the Christian life? Let's see. Ephesians chapter 2, verse 4, after he lists your condition being a, a child of the prince of darkness, he says in verse 4, but God being rich in mercy because of his great love, which he has loved us, even when we were dead in our transgressions, made us alive together with Christ. How'd you get saved? Well, he says, by grace are you saved. And he raised us up with him and seated us with him in heavenly places in Christ Jesus. What did Jesus do? I was dead. He was alive. He died for my sin. The minute I understood he died for me, I became his son. No greater thing could happen to you. You became his daughter at that moment. So John's telling you, in light of the judgment seat of Christ, live like a daughter. Live like a son. How are you doing? How did you get saved? Well, not by my work. Ephesians 2 verse 8, for by grace have you been saved through faith, that not of yourselves, it's the gift of God, not the result of works. Why? So that no one could boast. We talked about this last week. We would boast in our works if we could do it. And he says, no, I'm going to save you by the work of my son, not by your work. So if you die and you stand before the pearly gates and Peter asks you, why should you get into heaven? What are you going to do? Hey, consider, consider my spiritual works. What do you think is going to happen at that point? Uh, no entrance. No entrada. You're gone, dude. You're not coming in. Why? Your works don't matter. What work matters? Jesus. All you got to do is when you stand before Peter at the pearly gates is just say, I got the work of Jesus all over me. And you're in. You're a son. You're a daughter. So I tell you, can the people in your life, your husband who's lost, your wife who's lost, your friends that you carpool with or slug with, are they slugging now because of COVID? They still don't. Okay. So as you're in your car by yourself and you get to the Pentagon, <laughs> wherever, wherever you are, battalion commander, whatever you are, can everyone around you see that you're a son of God? A daughter of God. Can they see? Can they look at your life and go, I don't know what they got, but I got to have me some of that. Because one day you, you give account to God. Why? Because God poured his love all over you to save you. So then he throws in here, which is real interesting, verse, uh, in, in chapter 1, verse 3, uh, he, he talks to us just about how there, <laughs> it says, for this reason, the world did not know us because they didn't know him. They didn't recognize Jesus by and large, I mean, the majority of them didn't recognize this was God in the flesh. So they crucified him. There's some that came to know him, but they were, they were a small amount. 
uh, as Jesus said, narrow is the way that leads to life. Broad is the road that leads to destruction. And so most people didn't realize that that was the, the Lord of glory walking among them. And so Jesus says in John chapter 15, if this is how they treated me, prepare yourself. What did he say? Well, John 15, verse 20, remember the word that I said, word that I said to you. What did you say, Lord? Well, a slave isn't greater than his master. Notice the conditional clause. If they persecuted me, what's going to happen to you? They're, they're going to persecute you. Why are they going to persecute you? Because if, he says, if they kept my word, they would keep yours also. But all these things are going to do to you for my name's sake because they don't know the one who sent me. They don't know, they don't know the Father. And so they don't know me. And he says, they're going to they're persecute you for my name's sake. They're going to persecute you and actually think they're doing God a favor. But they don't know me. You ever been in, in a situation where you're surrounded by a whole bunch of non-Christians and you stand up for that which is true and they look at you like you're from Mars? You're like, what are you talking about? They, they don't know where you're from. They should be able to look at you and go, child of God, son of God, speaking truth of God. No, they don't look at you that way. They're like, they are a problem. And we have to deal with them somehow. Because the Christian uh, won't go along to get along. You won't. Uh, uh, you won't wink at wickedness. Uh, you won't embrace misguided zeal to refine reality, do, redefine reality. Uh, you won't kowtow to their Im imitation. You speak truth. You live truth. Remember the balance? I, I speak truth and I live a godly life. And that bothers the lost around you. Uh, and hopefully uh, by them being bothered, they get convicted by the spirit. They get saved. But, but are you living like a son or a daughter? Why should you do it? Go back to verse 28. Because one day, you as a son have to stand before him. Are you really ready for that day? I think about it all the time. Older I get, the more I think about it. <laughs> Why? <laughs> Road narrows, doesn't it? When you're 20, you're thinking, I got all the time in the world. When you're 60, you're thinking, I got much time. When you're 80, I'm on borrowed time. <laughs> you know? So prepare yourself. That's all, that's all he's telling you. Have bold belief. Um, Last, he says, a bold belief lives in light of who you will be. This is, I'm, you could do a whole sermon series on this one section here, but uh, I'll summarize for you. It's so exciting. Live in light of who you're going to be. Who am I going to be? Well, remember I told you my citizenship is here on earth, but it's also elsewhere. Where's my citizenship? I'm a child of God. My citizenship is in heaven. Where am I going? Heaven. Well, I should live in light of who I'm going to be when I see him face to face. That's what he says here. Beloved, now we are the children of God. It does not yet appear what we will be, but we know when he appears, we're going to be like him. Why? Because we're going to see him just as he is. Imagine, on the day the Lord appears, what happens to you? Boom! Instantly, you, become, you, you reflect him in every way. Beyond even things that are even described in Scripture. But we need to talk about this for a minute because inquiring minds want to know, don't they? I mean, when I see Jesus face to face, like what? what's going to happen? Uh, number one, you will be you. You're going to be you. If you don't like you now, start praying about it. You're going to be you for eternity. Uh, you don't lose your identity. Well, how do I know that? When, when, when Thomas, Downing Thomas, saw the resurrected Lord uh, and saw the, you know, the wounds and everything, he exclaims in, in John 20, 28, my Lord and my God. He knew exactly who Jesus was. When Jesus was resurrected, he didn't come back with another name. He came back Jesus. Why? Because they knew who that was. Which tells us, if I'm going to be like him when I see him, I'm still Marty. But it's going to be the new improved Marty. Same with you. I'm talking about number two. You're, 
You're going to have your emotions. You're going to have your emotions. Now, I know all the military people here, we don't have emotions. This is a straight line. No, 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 no. You come and you go. You come and you go. You know? And so everybody here has emotions kind of like a roller coaster, correct? Confess now. I mean, it, it happens. But you're going to have emotions. But they're going to be perfect emotions. That's the cool part. Uh, how do I know that? Well, in Revelation 2 to 3, when Jesus, the resurrected one, is testing the churches in Asia Minor, uh, he exhibits emotions. I mean, he condemns them. Uh, he commends them. I mean, he, he gets angry with their sin. He exhibits emotions. Why? They're perfect emotions. Now you're like, you got messed up emotions. <laughs> Only the front row is getting this. But uh, <laughs> the other ones are like, it's stage like, he can't see me. Uh, well, God can. So, <laughs> so when you're with Jesus and you see him face to face, you're not only going to be you with your identity, you're going to have emotions that are not tainted by sin. I mean, don't your emotions get you in trouble? And you sit around and think, yeah, what in the world was I thinking? No, perfect emotions. Uh, number three, your name is going to be your name. <laughs> you like your name? <laughs> your name is going to be your name. How do I know that? Because Isaiah 66 says this, verse 22. For just as the new heavens and the new earth, which I will make, will endure before me, declares the Lord, so your offspring and your name will endure. Well, if Abraham's name is going to endure, we must make a deduction. Well, then other names must endure, which means I'm stuck with Martin. I mean, I, was, I, I don't know if my, my mama, did my mom hear? Was it your idea? <laughs> it was her idea. Blame her. She's back there by the camera. Uh, yeah. Martin, what's it mean? Warrior. Okay, kind of think, kind of fits. Yeah, I mean, do you think it fits? I mean, it's like spiritual. Yeah, yeah, thank, thank you, Mom. Uh, you know, I, I got named nickname, Marty. I'm like, okay, I can live with that. Now when they call me on the phone and call me Martin, I know they don't know me, you know. <laughs> you, you know how that goes. But, but your name is going to be your name. But I know from Revelation 2.17, Jesus himself says, but I'm going to give you, between me and you, when I see you, a secret name. Isn't that cool? I mean, you're going to have your identity, you're going to be you, et cetera, your emotions, perfect emotions. But then, but then Jesus is going to, he's going to say, he's going to come to you after he, he, he tests you. And he says, hey, hey, come here. I've got the perfect name I've been waiting to give you. It's between me and you. When I call this name, you're going to know it's me. Isn't that cool? You're going to get a name. Um, here's another one. You're going, to re, you're going to retain your racial distinction. Yeah. <laughs> I'm only preaching to the front row. Okay, so... You're going to retain your, your racial distinction because God gave you that, right? See, our world tries to divide us on racial lines. And the Lord's like, no, I made all those races, right? How do I know that? Well, Revelation chapter 5, verse 9, it says, and, and they sang a new song before the throne of God saying, worthy art thou to take the book of judgment uh, and to break its seals for thou was slain uh, and didst purchase for God thy blood with thy blood men from every tribe and tongue and people and nation. Guess what that is? Racist. Racist. You know, and so, you know, on my dad's side, they came from England. On my mom's side, my great-great-grandma and grandpa were both full-blooded Choctaw Indians. Do I look Indian? <laughs> it's okay. You won't offend me. Uh, yeah, but that's in my genealogy. But, and, and it's like, oh, okay. Uh, did, did God die for the Choctaws? You bet he did. How about the Cherokees? Uh, absolutely he did. He loves all of those races. And guess what's going to be in heaven? Races. Races. Because he says they will be there, giving him praise. Won't that be an awesome day? Uh, and then I'm going to leave, f f conclude with this, because I told you this could be a whole series. 
Because like when I see him face to face, what will happen? It, well, your body's going to be organically related to you, but it's going to be totally different. I mean, you're going to be you, but the improved you. A resurrected body. Oh, this is awesome. 1 Corinthians 15. I'll just read it to you. I'll make a couple comments. Paul says, you fool. That which you sow does not come to life unless it dies. And that which you sow, you don't know what body it, which it's going to be, but, but bare grain, perhaps of wheat or something else. Depends on what you planted. But God gives it a body just as he wished, and to each of the seeds, a body of its own. So, so think about this. What is he talking about? If you plant a tulip seed, you know what it looks like? little round tulip seed. You plant it in the ground. When it comes out, does it look like that? No. It looks radically different. I mean, totally. Is it genetically related? Mm -hmm. It's organically the same thing, but radically different. And that's what Paul is saying. It depends on what you put in the ground. But when they put you in the ground... When you come out, it's going to be radically different. Amen to that? All flesh is not the same flesh, but there is one flesh of man, another of beasts, another of flesh of birds, another of fish. Uh, let's stop right there. What did he just tell you? Well, think about it. Paul says, look around. There's different kinds of flesh. My dog, Riley, has one kind of flesh. You know, I'm, the squirrels in my backyard, they're from the devil, uh, they have another kind of flesh. <laughs> you know, it's like fish have another kind of flesh. What's Paul say? Think about it. All the different kinds of flesh really tell you if there's all kinds of different variety here in God's presence, expect another kind of flesh. Could you imagine? I mean, what's wrong with this flesh now? You got issues? Sunspots? Like when you're young and you don't have those and they appear on you and you're like, where did that come from? From sun tanning too much. Stuff grows on you, tags and things. You're like, what in the world? Am I relating? Can you understand? Or you're just totally perfect bodies. You know, the chest has shifted. You know, you tell your children, used to be 50 inches with a 30-inch waist. Now it's, whoop, it's the, anyway. Imagine perfection, perfection. And now, keep reading, it's too exciting. Uh, he says there's heavenly bodies. If you look up, earthly bodies, but the glory of heaven is one, the glory of earth is another. There's the glory of the sun, the glory of the moon, the glory of the stars, for stars differ in their glory. So also, notice the equation, is the resurrection of the dead. It is so, so to perishable body, but it's raised imperishable. He says it is sown in dishonor, it's raised in glory. That's the word for brightness. It is sown in weakness, it is raised in power, it is sown with a natural body, it's raised a spiritual body. If there's a natural body, which there is, there's also a spiritual body. Paul says, wake up. He says, if you just look up and you see all the different uh, light variances between the stars, we're going to glow like them because we'll be exposed to the glory of Christ. And he says this in, in Daniel chapter 12, verse 3, it says we will glow like the stars. Why are we glowing? Because we're near Jesus in a new body that knows no age, knows no decay, knows no pain. What's the point of all this? Live in light of who you are, who you're going to be. If you're going to be this resurrected person in the presence of Christ, beholding his glory, shining as the stars, can't you just do a little bit of that right now? I mean, give people a taste of what lies ahead by your, by, by your life. Because Stephen was stoned, and they were stoning him. He looked up into heaven, and he saw God. He saw Christ. They said his face looked like that of a what? Angel. Because he's reflecting the glory. That's what John's saying is reflect the glory. Why? Well, because he poured his love all over you. So you pour your love all over him.